Welcome to the Beltway Broadcast, the premier podcast for the workplace learning and talent development professionals of the Association for Talent Development's Metro DC chapter. We've got some great resources in store for you today. Hello, fellow ATDers. I'm Leticia Niago, the 2022 president-elect for the Metro DC chapter of the Association for Talent Development. And I'm Christina Eanes, the Vice President of Marketing and Communications. Hey, everyone. I'm Stephanie Hupka, a chapter past president and a member of the pod squad here at the Metro DC chapter of ATD. We also have Helena Hodges, Vice President of Finance and Operations as our producer. For today's episode, we are interviewing the Director of Key Executive Leadership Programs at American University, a frequent guest lecturer on leadership and organizational dynamics, a retired Navy captain who spent 22 years in a number of senior leadership and policy roles, and the author of Emotional Intelligence in Talent Development, Dr. Patrick Malone. Welcome, Patrick. Thank you, Leticia. It's a great pleasure to be here. Thank you for the invitation. You're welcome. We're happy to have you. Now, before we jump into our topic of emotional intelligence in talent development, please share a little bit about yourself with our listeners. Sure. So I grew up in Austin, Texas and lived there most of my childhood. I ended up going into private sector in healthcare administration and policy as, as a young graduate student right out of grad school and felt myself very drawn toward public service. So I joined the Navy Medical Service Corps and served in that capacity for 22 years before joining American University back in 2000 and actually had a little bit of overlap between both of the positions. Ended up at American University where I've been teaching now since 2000 and directing the key executive leadership program. Patrick, this is a very interesting topic that we're going to talk about, uh, very dear to us here at ATD. Can you share with us what drew you to write specifically about emotional intelligence as a tool for success in talent development? Well, it's a terrific question, and I just can't think of anything more important for success in talent development than mastering emotional intelligence all of the research that we see suggests that organizations, for organizations to meet their goals, to meet their mission, there is only one factor that is of real note. And it's not something like financial planning or strategic planning or design thinking or anything like that. The one factor that comes up over and over again in the research is psychological safety. And emotional intelligence is crucial to psychological safety, especially when you consider the role that talent development professionals play in recruiting and developing today's workforce. Oh, absolutely. I love that in, in relating emotional intelligence into psychological safety. Now, before we go a little bit further, can you, for those talent development professionals out there that maybe haven't dived into this area before, can you define emotional intelligence and, and just give maybe an overview of the components? Absolutely, Christina. So emotional intelligence has has been around for quite a number of years, even though it has really only gained popularity since about the mid-90s or so. Uh, The idea behind emotional intelligence is, first of all, a comparison, say, for example, between emotional intelligence and intelligence quotient. Uh, 
So what the research suggests and what we focused on in terms of our own career development over the years has typically been IQ. IQ is important. It's very important when we're in school. In fact, a lot of the early writing on this topic and research is by Dan Goleman. And one of the things that Goleman points out in one of his interviews is that IQ is very important for accomplishing success at, at while, while we are in school. But once we get out of school and we're around other professionals, our IQs all tend to be about the same. So what that means is that we're all about as smart as each other. So what that means is it's it's a wash. I mean, it doesn't really matter. I can say, well, I know more about recruiting than you do. And you can say, well, yeah, well, I know more about how to put together training development plans than you do. And I can <laughs> say, oh, yeah, well, I mean, you know, we can go back and forth all day long yeah. about this. And that really isn't what matters. Everybody's smart. And most people in this field are about a standard deviation above the norm where intellectual intelligence or IQ comes in. So what does that mean? It means that what we've been missing is a focus on the emotional skills. And the emotional intelligence quotient is actually far more important to us in terms of building the right kind of environments in our workplace than IQ. The EI quadrants, the typical emotional intelligence quadrants, are often considered to be, first and foremost, self-awareness. Mm. Self-awareness, you cannot have the rest of the emotional intelligence uh, model. You can't do it without self-awareness. And self-awareness can be very hard because it causes us to take a deep dive into our own soul. It causes us to look at ourselves in the mirror and say, you know what, this is what you're pretty good at. And this is what you're not so good at. You <laughs> yep. know, I kind I kind of get, you know, I, I feel, I feel these emotions and I, I feel jealousy or I feel anger or I feel fear. And we've been taught for so many years in our professions to just push those away as irrational. The fact of the matter is that emotions are never irrational. What's sad about emotions is that when we push them down, when we don't absorb them, when we don't own them, then we're truly not feeling as a human being. So self-awareness is first and foremost. Where we usually get into trouble is not where emotions are concerned, rather what we do with those emotions. <laughs> yep. And that is the second quadrant of emotional intelligence. I often like to ask the leaders that I work with, you know, what is it out there that just drives you crazy? Like when somebody runs through a four-way stop, when somebody puts their hand over the glass at Chipotle to point at the black beans. <laughs> I mean, what really makes you angry? It, make, it just drives you crazy. What the self-management quadrant is about is it's about First of all, feeling and owning those emotions, and then modulating our behavior. Uh, Dan calls it the amygdala hijack. The amygdala is a component of the brain that whenever it gets hijacked, we tend to act before we think. So self-management, very important, second component, second quadrant of emotional intelligence. The third one would be what we call social awareness. Social awareness matters a lot because this is our ability to notice. It's our ability to observe. And sadly, for most people in, in the talent development profession, we're too busy. We have so much going on. We don't really take the time to sit back and observe and think and discern. We're trying to go from deadline to deadline to try to get our work done. The social awareness quadrant is the one that allows us to take a step back to observe other people to listen, to truly listen, which is just the most difficult thing for most of us, to observe not only what they say, but to watch for 
for signs that are nonverbal as well, to really listen in an empathetic way. And this is the, the, the component of social awareness. It's about, it's about embracing others. It's about the diversity and the inclusion. That's what the, the, this quadrant is about. And then the last one is called relationship management. This is what people see on the outside. So this is what people see when, when you are interacting with someone at the workplace. This is something that people see when you're tested in a meeting where someone says something that everybody knows made you angry or everybody knows really trips your switch and they're watching how you behave. This is what everybody sees, this relationship management. And taken together, these four quadrants, once again, with self-awareness being the first and foremost, these are the ones that really allow us to build strong emotional intelligence. And the really good news about this is that it allows us, these are all things we can develop. These are competencies. We don't have to be born with them. We can practice them. Good listening, for example, taking a deep breath before we respond to someone or hitting send on that on that computer message, right? On that email, hitting send and then regretting, oh my gosh, I wish I wouldn't have done that. You know, these are practice, these are skills that are very easy to practice. They're easy to develop. And once once we teach ourselves to use them regularly, we default to thinking about them first. I feel like you've teed up one of the questions that I had is you were talking through a couple of these quadrants, and that really is about the development component. There are so many times that we're almost expected to arrive at work with all of these different, a lot of times they're called soft skills. I call them essential skills. But the idea that we're supposed to arrive with all of these really fully developed, but really at work is where so many of us have that opportunity to further develop, to practice. I'd love to hear your thoughts on what that can look like in a successful scenario. What does it look like to be able to develop emotional intelligence on the job? It's a terrific question, Stephanie. I think there are several things that we can observe and practice ourselves. For example, let's say that we're in a meeting and we're discussing a, a new recruiting technique or a new recruiting uh, program for, for bringing talent into an organization. Part of the dynamics of that particular meeting are going to be people tossing out ideas and, and, and sharing ideas. Strong emotional intelligence skills in that regard would look like the following. You would have people who are patiently waiting for others to speak. You would have people who are including others. So when the extroverts like me finish our gabbing for the 20 or 30 minutes, we finally look over at the introvert who's actually been thinking about it before they speak <laughs> and invite them into the conversation. Once again, the social awareness aspect of, of recognizing that someone has yet to contribute. So we actually take the time to look around and, and make sure everyone has had a chance. Maybe when someone, when we present an idea and someone says, oh, Patrick, terrible idea. We've tried that before. You know, I might get a little defensive about that because it was my idea. I probably have some ownership to that. So recognizing and feeling that emotion and reacting appropriately to that would be another example. I mentioned strong listening skills. I, I think also a very huge component of, of EI and specifically of the social awareness aspect would be empathy. 
So when someone is presenting an idea in a meeting or we're having a conversation and it, it seems like it's an idea that's not really flying, that people are kind of shooting it down a bit, maybe offering an empathetic response to that person in, in, in by saying, you know, that really sounds like a great idea. I think there's some wonderful aspects to that to give them some sense of credibility and some sense of, of, of pleasure and confidence that they did contribute in some way. We're all hardwired to do that. We're all hardwired to want to belong. And through these kind of skills, it can it can really, really, really happen. I love that connection into inclusion. And I, I don't think it can be stated enough. It's such an important part of what it means to feel safe at work. So I'm thrilled to hear you talk about that. And I kind of want to flip this a little bit because I think it, it's so important to think about what it looks like in the workplace. And now I'm thinking about our listeners today who might work in instructional design and facilitation. I'm curious how emotional intelligence starts to play out during that design development delivery process that so many of us are part of. Where does that start? Does it start from the very beginning? Is that something that gets inserted in? I'm I'm so curious about how you've seen that successfully approach. Well, especially with the the, the tasks that you just described and the in mm. the and the great people that do that kind of work. You know, one right. of the things that we want when we're doing that kind of work is we want we want an environment of creativity. We want an environment of innovation. We want an environment of free thought. And and what emo- and so so to answer your question, Stephanie, I think that what happens is that this has to occur from the beginning. It's got to be part of the culture, and the culture being a culture of welcoming, a culture of discussion, a culture of learning, a culture of humble inquiry. And when you're designing approaches to talent development, when you're designing curriculum, when you're building that material, the the, the dynamics among the the individuals, the professionals that are doing this are, are, are bouncing ideas off of one another, bringing in different lines of theory, maybe different practical expectations or uh, practical exercises that we can do in the classroom as part of our development. And all of that requires us to be welcoming and inclusive of one another and to value each other's opinions. Where, where it plays out in a negative way, though, is when I come into that meeting, I've got my thoughts. And we're designed to be confident. We're designed to, and we're also designed to fall back neurologically on our pre-existing ways of thinking and on the areas where we are the most comfortable. So if I'm the most comfortable because of my expertise, because of my experience with a certain way of designing curriculum or creating programs... I'm going to have to think very hard about my own self-awareness and realize maybe my way isn't the best way. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't mean that we don't settle there. It just means that we open it to other conversation. And literally, what you see happen in these kinds of situations is people who are practicing this, who struggle with it, will take a deep breath. They'll literally physiologically and physically respond by taking a deep breath, maybe closing their eyes for a moment, gathering, because we have this, we want to jump in. We want to, we, especially if we're defending our own kind of approach. And so I think that in terms, and, and when we're able to do this in, in the development phase, we're creating not only an environment of innovation, but we're creating an environment of trust where I know that if I bring my ideas, I can trust that the people around me are not attacking me and my thoughts. Rather, we're all trying to get to the same end goal. And especially in, the, in, in this type of field, it, it's so crucial to be able to have that safety in, in those development stages. I love that. Well, and along those lines, 
we're in the talent development industry, right? So our job is people. So I, I almost see us as needing to be uh, held to a higher standard when it comes to emotional intelligence. So are there some suggestions for just assessing yourself and further developing yourself as a talent development professional so you can be maybe a, a role model for others in this area? Absolutely. And I think one of the exercises that I recommend to the leaders that I work with, and it sounds like a very simple exercise, but it's a great way to get started beginning with self-awareness. And I suggest that they do the following. Prepare a table, uh, like write a table on a piece of paper or on your laptop, and then make three columns in the table. And in the far left column, write down the roles that you play as a human being the roles you play. Oh, wow. So perhaps you're an analyst, you're a designer, you're someone's partner, maybe you're a cousin, maybe you're a parent, maybe you're a niece, maybe you're a coach, maybe you're an analyst, whatever you maybe you're a volunteer, maybe you're an activist, whatever you happen to be, think of all those possibilities, all the roles you play, all the way down that left column. In the middle column, write down the first feeling that you have the first feeling that you have when you think of yourself in that role. So as an example, when I did this exercise years ago, the first thing I wrote down for a role was a son because I was the son of my mom. And my first, my first feeling or my first emotion that went into that second column was always fear. And the reason that it was fear was because my mom lived a long way away. She still lives down in Texas and she would not venture north of the Red River. I could not get her to come to Maryland. And so as she aged and as her health started to fail, I couldn't be there for her because I couldn't get her to get up here with me. And so I felt, I felt fear and I felt helplessness. But by writing those down, you can see not only are we identifying the role, but we're identifying the emotion. And sometimes the emotion is a positive one. Sometimes it's joy. Maybe it's not so. Maybe it's sadness. Maybe it's, maybe it's fear, whatever it happens to be, but write down the emotions in that second column. And then in the third column, write down the next thing, the next action that you're going to take with regard to that emotion and that role. So going back to my example of me as a son, so son, and then in the middle, got helplessness or fear. And then my third column, the first thing I'm going to do is call her or call her every day, which actually is exactly what I did uh, up until the day she passed away. I always called my mother every single day. And so that allows me not only to embrace the, the, the emotion or to really, well, first of all, identify the role, the things that we do, and then embrace the emotion, identify that emotion, think through what that emotion might be, and then have an action plan. And that action plan can be one step or two steps or three steps, whatever is appropriate. But the action plan may also include, you know, doing some journaling, maybe doing some mindfulness exercises or meditation. Maybe that action plan, if you have a a relationship with an individual or based on your role, maybe you're someone's niece and you want to reach out to your aunt and uncle and you haven't done it, maybe because there's some fear there because of 
past family history, maybe your action is to reach out. But the advantage of doing this exercise is it's very comprehensive. It allows us to bring our whole person, not just our role as an instructional designer, not just our role as a recruiter, but rather the whole person, all the roles we play, all the feelings that we feel. And it gives us a little blueprint of what to do next. And what that does to the brain neurologically when you do this, it creates a sense of peace and it creates a sense of predictability. And that's important for the brain. We want that. We are always striving for that. And when we have that, that frees up our brain to think about other things and to be more innovative and be more equitable and be more inclusive. So that would that would be one exercise I would definitely recommend. Well, that's a great one. Well, and I love how you brought in the neuroscience because that can also help, right, reduce that amygdala hijack, that reactivity. You know, it's it's only been about in the last 20 years or so, Christina, where neuroscience has caught yeah. up or shown us shown us actually objectively and quantifiably what we are now, what we've been talking about in leadership for years. And Stephanie mentioned the the soft skills and, and she calls them the essential skills. I think that is just amazing yes. because I still run into leaders who air quote soft skills and roll their eyes <laughs> because mm-hmm. they know they know, that I like, right, they know that I like <laughs> Beatles music and they think I'm going to have them hugging trees, right? And it's like, you know what? The problem is that these are what matter the most. The cognitive capability that we have to master the expertise of our jobs or the competencies of our jobs is completely different than the need, than the ability that we need to master our emotions. And it's when we master our emotions and build those relationships, that's when our organizations take off. That's when we accomplish our mission. And that's when we create environments of trust and inclusion. And that's what we need today. I love absolutely everything about what you've shared. And it gets me thinking too, especially the the idea of, you know, the the emotional intelligence that goes into work. And I'm I'm thinking now about how we've really been on a journey. Um, and actually one of the words you used earlier when you were talking about how all of us are naturally confident kind of made me smile because I was thinking, you know, back in say 2019, for example, I think everyone had a very natural confidence about where they were, their roles. You know, there was a lot of of confidence about that. But 2020 really kind of took everyone in a different direction. A lot of us were very shaken. And fast forward to now, we're about to be shaken again. The world is starting to reopen a bit. We're starting to return to the office. I'm wondering what thoughts you have or tips you might have about the connection between emotional intelligence and our post-pandemic success as we are either returning to the office, as we're looking at our teams, as we're thinking about how the trainings that we're developing may be very different. They may be very reflective of a very hybrid world that we are now in. Yeah, thank you, Stephanie. I think that there's a couple of things I would say about that. First of all, yeah, 2020 changed everything. And if there's if there's anything positive that has come out of this pandemic, what it has done is it has caused people to reassess their lives, their work lives and their personal lives. Absolutely. And, you know, you, you've heard of the Great Resignation, and mm-hmm. we've, we've seen the data on that. And it's real, even though I've, I've read some articles recently of, oh, well, maybe it's just people changing jobs. Oh, no, it's real. Because what people are now saying is they're saying, wait a second, you know what? I lost friends and family in the last couple of years. And there's no one that's listening to this podcast that didn't. Somebody knows somebody who lost someone. And it has been a devastating time. And let's not even get into what's going on in Ukraine right now. It's a very difficult time. 
But I think what has happened is that it has caused us to reassess how we balance work with the rest of our lives. You know, we talk about that a lot, but whenever we were staring down the face of, of, a, of a pandemic, especially early on when we knew so little about it, and it and we were all locked down, I mean, really locked down, not even masking, just locked down, I think everyone started to rethink the way they saw work life. Yeah. And that that will be a positive, I think, ultimately. In terms of coming back to the workplace, one of the things where, where I think emotional intelligence really plays in here is that we do have a cadre of, of managers and senior level folks out there that are forgetting that we've been through a lot of bad stuff. And they're using phrases like, let's get back to work. And I'm like, uh, excuse me. <laughs> I think we've all been working for the last couple of years. And this in this zeal, in this desire to get back to work, aka back, drive 25 or minutes or 45 minutes or an hour 15 if you live in the Beltway and get down to that office downtown. We need you there. You know, when they've when they've made that their their goal and their mission they're forgetting the fact that every human being that is walking back into that workplace has a story. And that story is their pandemic story. And it is a story of fear. It's a story of sorrow. It's a story of sadness. Nobody comes back with a story of happiness unless they got it and survived, right? And then they can say, oh, I had it, you know, but I survived. What, what employers and managers and supervisors need to make sure of is that they make the time for people coming back quote, to the workplace, even if it's virtual, even if it's hybrid, whatever it happens to be, let's not just continue business as usual. Let's take the time to have a conversation with one another about what life has been like. How do you feel, right? How do you feel? How are things going for you? Um, did you lose anyone during the pandemic? It's okay to ask that question. It's okay to ask how we're faring with this. It's okay to ask if we're still afraid. The Chapman University survey on fears comes out every year. And they put out a, a list in January, six of the top 10 fears of Americans are still related to healthcare. And, and before that, it was four. It was four before pandemic, and now it's been six. So we're constantly worried about this. It's still on our minds, and we need to use our emotional intelligence competencies to reconnect, to truly reconnect, and show the people that are, quote, coming back to the workplace that we still care about them. Remember back at the very beginning of this, it was, oh, you keep yourself safe. You stay safe. Everyone had everybody's back. And now it's like, get back to work. I'm like, well, wait a minute. <laughs> Hold on. Let's, let's remember that we're still dealing with this. And, and, and it's something I think we need to stay focused on. Just allow for the time. We need that human to human connection. The mission will take care of itself. Oh, absolutely. Wow. That was powerful. Uh, and that's a, that's a great way to finish discussing emotional intelligence with our listeners. But we're not done with you yet, Patrick. <laughs> <laughs> we still have the rapid fire questions. <laughs> so okay, I'm We're ready. still going to get ready. some wisdom out of you and who knows, it could be that powerful as well. Okay, give us one book that everyone must read and why. It is a book written by a former uh, neurology professor and psychologist or psychiatrist at the University of Vienna Medical School. Uh, the author is Viktor Frankl, F-R-A-N-K-L, mm. and the book is Man's Search for Meaning. The reason I recommend this book so highly is because it's a book that allows you to think about what you have in your life when you have nothing. 
And Viktor Frankl and his family for many years had nothing. And what he discovered about himself and about the joy of life and about meaning is, uh, it, it's really phenomenal. It's an amazing read. And it's one I think everybody should pick up every couple of years and read through. Oh, wow. Yeah. And it, I mean, Viktor Frankl, like poster poster person for emotional intelligence, right? <laughs> Absolutely. Yes. Absolutely. Awesome. Awesome uh, suggestion there. Okay. So what is a tool you can't live without? Now, Christina, this is something I struggled with because I don't know what kind of tool you're talking about. Any tool. Any tool. Any tool. Well, I'm going to go off script here. It's blue painter's tape. Ooh. I'm going to tell you why. I, I mean, I thought, well, maybe they're talking about some sort of, of psychological tool or some sort of growth tool. Anything. And, um, and if, <laughs> okay. If I, were to say, if I were to say that, I know I'm actually giving you two answers now. <laughs> if I were to say that, I would say the tool would be reflection. Ooh, uh, yeah. Absolutely crucial to, to maintaining balance and, and to maintaining a sense of where we belong in the world and how we are able to, uh, to re to interact with one another. Blue painter's tape, because I live on a sailboat most of the year, <laughs> and it's absolutely magical. <laughs> hey, that both of those are awesome. They work. <laughs> okay, final question. What is the best piece of advice you've ever been given? Always leave everything better than you found it. You know, uh, you often see that referred to like when you go camping, always leave it, you know, leave the environment cleaner and nicer than the way you found it. But I think that that phrase is so powerful because it also, it also reflects on leaving relationships better than you found them. Mm. You know, even something as simple as having a, a, a quick interaction with someone at a hardware store, which I actually did this morning. And, and I, I thought, you know, I need to re I need to leave every interaction that I have with every human being better than I found it, mm. which means to show some sign of joy or love or appreciation or curiosity to make that person feel special and make them feel like they're a part of what of what the great plan is for all of us in this world. So always leave everything better than you found it. Doesn't matter what it is. I love it. And I hope everyone takes that advice to heart. <laughs> Thank you so much. Patrick, we are so happy you joined us today to share your wisdom with our listeners. Thank you. Leticia, I'm not sure I'd call it wisdom, but <laughs> thank you so much. <laughs> and thank you all for the, the terrific work that you all do with all the talent development professionals in the area. This has been a lot of fun, and I greatly appreciate the invitation. Definitely. And thank you to my amazing co-host as well. Oh, this has been great. It really has. And I have to say to Patrick, I am with you on the blue painter's tape. I never, <laughs> ever run low on the tape. I, that is, that's some of the best advice, some of the best, you know, one of the best tools I've heard, trust me. But I, I also, I have to say too, I mean, just your approach to emotional intelligence, it really honors people's stories and experiences. And I think there's a lot of wisdom, even if that may not be your word, that would be mine today. There's a lot of wisdom to get from today's conversation. Thank you so much. Well, thank you, Stephanie. And thank you, Christina, as well. And Leticia, I, I, it's been a real pleasure. And, you know, this, I think if we all just go out and try to make the world a better place a little bit every day, we'll eventually get there. Absolutely. And many thanks to our community for listening. Before you go, we have a message from our producer, Helena Hodges. Are you interested in learning more about the Metro DC chapter of ATD or following us on social media? Go to dcatd.org and click on About. 
Follow the Metro DC chapter of ATD on LinkedIn today. Thank you.